0: Hi, I'm Olivia Higgins,
1: and I'm Alicia Maver,
0: and welcome to Interventions, the intellectual history podcast. After a long hiatus, we're delighted to be returning to you from a new studio with new episodes in the works. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear from our new conveners. Our guest today is Richard Burke, Professor of the History of Political Thought at Cambridge and Fellow of the British Academy. Professor Burke obtained his PhD in Cambridge and began his academic career in Dublin. He went on to Queen Mary University of London, where he became professor in the School of History in 2012. In 2018, he was elected to the chair in the History of Political Thought here in Cambridge, where he is also a fellow of King's College. Professor Burke's work engages a range of topics across the history of political thought, especially from the 18th century to the present. His books include Peace in Ireland, The War of Ideas, and Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke winner of the 2015 Ishtvenhand Book Prize. His new book, Hegel's World Revolutions, is out later this year with Princeton University Press.
1: Thank you for joining us, Professor Burke. It's great to have you with us here today.
2: Well, thanks
0: for having me.
1: We'd like to begin with a question about your path to intellectual history as a PhD student here in Cambridge and beyond. Could you tell us about how you came to study the subject and what sources or mentors might have inspired you along the way?
2: Well, the first thing to say probably is that my path towards the study of intellectual history and the history of political thought in particular is an unusual one. Uh, As an undergraduate, I originally studied English and philosophy and uh, I started my PhD having a sort of interest in literature and European philosophy, working on romanticism, and I was based at King's College, Cambridge. That was the period, I would say, the 1980s, in which the study of literature in universities probably began to implode in the context of what were then called the theory wars. So there was something rather unsatisfactory about the intellectual environment. Anyway, over the course of that, I myself developed my own interest, as it were, autonomously in intellectual history, partly because I was working on the late 18th century. So at that time, I read, for instance, um, the Hunt and Ignatia volume on wealth and virtue, and a lot of Pocock and, and so on and so forth. But these were not personal mentors. Although I was at King's, and Hunt was, by that stage, by the late 80s, teaching at King's, I never met him. But I knew his work. Uh, I knew Dunn's work, his work, Pocock's work. So so really, it was just uh, my own interest. And because I was already working on the late 18th century, after my first book, I then ended up in the same period working on Edmund Burke. And by that stage, I suppose I was what might be called a more fully fledged intellectual historian. So it was not by a process of mentoring, but by, by a process of election, if you like. Although I did get to know these figures later, uh, and they ended up being supportive. But as as a graduate student, it was a bit of a wilderness, to be honest. Of course, later, after my PhD, and actually when I was tenured academic, I, I then separately did a degree in uh, classics, essentially Latin and Greek, um, and also the text that went along with it. And that was informed by my already existing interest in intellectual history, largely because, of course, if you're, if you're working on a pre-19th century period, most of the figures you're going to study are classically trained. So it made logical sense to me, and that's an additional path I pursued. So I suppose summing up everything I said, my path to, again, use your phrase, is idiosyncratic and quirky, but um, I'm happy with that myself.
0: Much of your work has employed intellectual history to challenge the historiographical and ideological categories that seem to have settled around your subjects, from the conflict in Northern Ireland to the legacies of Edmund Burke and G.W.F. Hegel. Writing about conservatism in 2018, you discussed uh, such a methodological outlook by probing István Hahn's phrase, history is the tool of skeptics. Could you tell us more about the nature of the skepticism and its place in your work? Well, I can.
2: First, I should say that that phrase comes from, as you say, an article on conservatism that was sort of submitted for a festschrift, and I, I was therefore obliged to engage with Ishvan van Haan's work, so it wasn't by my own original intellectual design. But I picked up on this phrase, history is the tool of sceptics. And although in the article as a whole, I, I, was, I was questioning the idea of conservatism as an enduring ideological phenomenon, The same might, in fact, be said of scepticism itself, as in fact a graduate student pointed out to me subsequently. I mean, scepticism itself is an essentially contested concept, and I accept that point. But nonetheless, the thought that history is the tool of sceptics is an interesting one, and Hunt was a self-declared and committed sceptic. I should say at the outset, however, I am not. Nonetheless, I do think scepticism plays a very important role in intellectual inquiry generally, and I think I would say rather that skepticism is a tool of history and intellectual investigation generally, rather than it being um, the other way around and history being a tool of of skeptics. So whilst it's a tool of inquiry, that means it's um, a way in which one can question or interrogate common sense assumptions, subject them to scrutiny and potentially undermine them. Uh, Not for the sake of undermining them, but because they might be problematic. So skepticism is a key mode of inquiry. The history of skepticism, complicated as it is in itself, shows this. Uh, And I think the idea, pache, haunt, of someone being a skeptic is itself a flawed idea. Bale used skepticism. He wasn't a skeptic. Hume equally, though, in many ways, he self-designated as a skeptic. There are many things about which he wasn't skeptical at all. And I think, once again, he was a skeptic about you know, metaphysical structures rooted in Christianity. That's that's the sort of basic point of his being a skeptic. Uh, nonetheless, he's also uh, committed to certain areas of vindicating common sense. So it's not comprehensive skepticism. In fact, he was extremely unskeptical about uh, moral norms, which is most unusual for a skeptic and might all, almost qualify him as a non-skeptic or anti-skeptic. I mean, he doesn't question the viability of, of moral norms in the, in the way that previous and subsequent thinkers do. Having said all of which, whilst I'm therefore not myself a skeptic because I, I, I'm committed to um, knowledge and transcending skepticism, I believe, I suppose not unlike Hegel, though obviously I'm not putting myself in that camp exactly, I believe skepticism is a, is a means and the only means Of advancing knowledge. So one starts in scepticism with um, a view to making progress in inquiry rather than with a view to ending up in an end stage of radical perplexity without orientation, which is what scepticism would be. So, in a way, no one was ever a sceptic, truly.
1: Moving on to your work on Irish history and politics, your 2003 book, Peace in Ireland The War of Ideas argued that the conflict in Northern Ireland was a distinctly modern one between competing visions of democracy and democratic legitimacy. We're interested in how the case of Northern Ireland has helped frame your thought on democracy more broadly. Could you speak about the core lessons you take from Irish history and politics for theorists and historians of democracy?
2: Well, thanks. I think there are two things there. One is specifically about Northern Ireland and the other is about the wider lessons. About the first, I think I'll have to say that I'm a child of the 1980s, and that decade began from my neighbourhood uh, with the hunger strikes um, in Northern Ireland. I should say I'm from Southern Ireland, not from Northern Ireland, but nonetheless, the hunger strike experience threatened to plunge both jurisdictions into something potentially approaching a civil war situation. I think there was a civil war situation in the north, but it threatened after, you know, in the early 80s to envelop the south as well. So it was an all-encompassing preoccupation for anyone with an interest in public life in that part of the world, in that parish, if you like. So it was impossible not to have um, an interest in um, that particular political problem. I thought of it as a problem relating to the intellectual complexities attached to the norm of democracy. That is to say, the conflict in Northern Ireland was about contesting the legitimacy uh, of the state with either either side um, in that conflict, pleading or appealing to um, opposing democratic norms, a norm of democratic majoritarianism uh, on one side, the so-called unionist side, and on the other side, the Republican side, um, appealing to a theory of statehood, essentially. Now, the important thing to realize is that um, after its formation in 1920, uh, Northern Ireland had a ruling party which never lost elections. Um, well, on some definitions, if you're a ruling party who never loses elections, it's not quite a democratic regime. But nonetheless, it was put in power in each electoral cycle by a majority of voters. So it was a curious situation of being both democratically legitimate and democratically illegitimate, which immediately raises the question well, what on earth is democracy there if both rivals can appeal to the same norm and end up with lethally opposing conclusions? So that's what interested me. And I was interested, therefore, in the component parts of democratic um, ideology and um, democratic organization, because democracies uh, involve a theory of the state, a theory of representation, a theory of political parties, and um, a theory of uh, government power. Not one of those things, but but minimally all of those things, and therefore how these branches relate. Now, now we know now that democracy is actually um, problematic a system of government. In other words, it could implode. At the time, the idea of its imploding was not taken to be normal. Nonetheless, we were looking at an imploding democracy based on democratic norms. So there was something, to move to the second part of your question, there was something of larger significance about this. And it seemed to me that when we look at it, you know, the polities under which we grow up, they, they seem natural and unproblematic. But When they are disintegrating or potentially disintegrating, you then begin to ask the question about, or questions about what holds them together. And in the modern world, and to me precisely as as has already been said, uh, this was a modern conflict, it it exposes many of the component parts of modern democratic uh, or generally political architecture. So I was interested in that. And so there are issues of wider lessons about why democracies fail or, or break down. And this seemed to me a good a good case um, in point. Though obviously it's a small corner of the world, so it will never attract a large amount of, uh, of interest. But, but, but nonetheless, to me, it had an all-absorbing interest, obviously. And, um, you know, I, I think there is something very compelling about its failures
0: and its drama. Your 2015 monograph, Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke, was praised for its encompassing portrait of Burke's thought, deriving great insight from his career in Parliament alongside his political writings. How did you come to view a political life as the necessary framing for fresh perspective on Edmund Burke?
2: Well, actually, I think it's important to say that I discovered that to be necessarily the case that I had to work on a political life rather than starting off there. So since I originally had philosophical interests, I was very much interested in writing an intellectual history. And it's with that expectation that I started working on Burke and my interests were in him as a a thinker interacting with Hume, with whom he had a correspondence, and Smith, of whom he was a friend, and... um, Rousseau, uh, who, who he'd review, whom he'd reviewed and um, was interested in, and Montesquieu, who a relation of Burke's um, translated. So he was moving in an Enlightenment intellectual milieu, and that was originally my interest. But... The truth of the matter was, and the unavoidable truth, was that he was also an acting politician and uh, not just some vague kind of politician, but a member of parliament and intermittently uh, a member of government. So he was subjected to immediate quotidian political pressures and therefore studying his political thought meant studying his politics. And although these are overlapping entities, one could draw useful distinctions between them. Now, his his politics were were shaped by his engagement with the issues which bore down upon Parliament in the late 18th century. Uh, So not some theoretical preoccupations, but immediate practical preoccupations determined by the fact that um, Britain had been an expanding empire. Um, It had just come out of a very expensive war. It had to fund itself. Therefore, it had to relate in new ways to the component parts of the empire, uh, you know, the, the American colonies, obviously, uh, and the Indian subcontinent, in relation to both of which it immediately attempted to uh, derive revenues in order to uh, sustain itself in its various European conflicts, primarily against uh, France. So his concerns with America, uh, India, Ireland, France, and domestic British business was determined by his career so I had to be interested in the daily practicalities uh, of that career. Now that did have an enormous impact on how that book had to be written Uh, to begin with the source base, my source base, uh, could no longer just be reading other leading thinkers as an aid to contextualizing Burke. That remained important, but it was not sufficient. So it was necessary, but not sufficient. At the same time, I had to follow the parliamentary debates. I had to understand um, his role in parliament, his relationship to his own party, his party's relationship to the ministries of the day, uh, the periods in which his party occupied, a ministerial role itself, and so on and so forth. So that changed not only the... um, intellectual purview of the book, but also its source base rather dramatically. So I no longer just had the source base of the intellectual historian, but also directly had to draw upon contemporary um, newspaper reporting, because of course they reported uh, parliamentary debates, records of parliamentary debates more generally, uh, diaries uh, of parliamentary debates, and generally speaking, the source base of the parliamentary historian as well as the intellectual historian. Uh, so that did make it necessarily, whilst on the one hand, a work of intellectual history, nonetheless a political life. So I actively decided not to call it a, an intellectual biography because I thought, well, he's not an intellectual, he's a politician. So it, it has to track that, really.
1: With Quentin Skinner, you recently published an edited collection of essays entitled History in the Humanities and Social Sciences. The book gathers a variety of perspectives on the place of history, and specifically, historical consciousness within the humanities, from disciplines such as economics and international relations to philosophy and literature. There's a rich precedent to this line of inquiry, which comes through in the introduction and throughout the volume's contributions. What makes examining the role of historical consciousness in these other disciplines such an important, or even urgent, task for historians today?
2: Well, thanks, Alicia. That's exactly what the point of the project was it was to recover the importance of historical consciousness generally in the humanities and social sciences, rather than thinking about what history might be specifically for historians. It was to remind us of the fact that historical modes of inquiry were standard across what we now call the disciplines like uh, political economy and and law and international relations and so on and so forth. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is famously, in part, an historical inquiry. Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, whilst it's obviously in some sense, to use modern language, a contribution to political science, is a comparative and historicising inquiry into the nature. Of politics. And so we started very much with an awareness of that and thinking about these facts juxtaposed with uh, the modern state of the disciplines, which are often self consciously un or anti historical. So just to say again, we were interested in recovering the importance of historical consciousness. Now it seems to me that historians themselves today uh, could be reminded of what the nature of this preoccupation with historical consciousness originally was, because many historians today are no longer principally concerned with the pastness of the past, but have turned to face the past as if it were uh, an object to be subject to criticism. This seems to me a fundamentally unhistorical or certainly unhistoricist conception of historical understanding altogether. So for many contemporary historians, history in this sense is not their goal at all. Moral criticism conducted via historical inquiry is their their project. Uh, And um, that's fine for them, but nonetheless it forgets what an important asset uh, understanding the past as the past might be. Now, that last line um, may make the project sound rather Oakeshottian, a study of the pastness of the past. The commitment of the book, and certainly mine, um, is not, however, Oakeshottian um, in in the wider sense. I do think it's possible to study the past in its pastness and then still ask the question, why are you doing that and what is it for? I don't think that the historian must end up with no practical concerns or interests. I think you can be interested in the pastness of the past as an aid to thinking about practical questions. It's just that you shouldn't confuse the two. So I don't think history should be an instrument of criticism. It should be a tool of inquiry. But once you've reconstructed the relevant world you're addressing historically, I think it's just unrealistic not to think that your interest is actually practical. And that's absolutely fine by me. But I I do think that It's very important to separate out the meaning of historical consciousness from uh, practically engaged critical consciousness in which the historian, particularly the contemporary historian, is largely addressing earlier behaviours with a view to condemning them. Fine, it's not that uh, the rest of us have some desire to agree with them or applaud them, but, but nonetheless... Understanding begins with an attempt to reconstruct the past on its own terms rather than filter it through a, a len- the lens of one's own set of normative judgments. So, I do think uh, normative inquiry and historical inquiry are both valid intellectual pursuits, but I think it's also important not to blend or confuse them.
0: That leads nicely into our, our next question. Um, we're looking forward to your new book out later this year. Much of what has appeared about it so far suggests an account of Hegel that is of great relevance to our modern political context. Could you tell us more about this reading and how it has eluded some of Hegel's 20th century interpreters?
2: Yes. Well, the center of the book, Hegel's World Revolutions, was, as the title suggests, a preoccupation with Hegel's understanding of revolution Uh, Of course, he'd lived through a revolution, especially the aftermath of a revolution. And so um, its dynamic very much captivated his intelligence and imagination. But at the same time, he wasn't just interested in a local experience of revolution, but began to see human social life generally, of course, as a product of history, but as a product, in fact, of a sequence of world historical revolutions. And the most important for him were, for instance, the transition from Judaism to Christianity to the Reformation to modern moral consciousness, uh, and also from China, Persia, and Egypt, through to the Greeks and the Romans, and on to modern Christian social and political life. So he was interested in these great overturnings and upheavals and the dynamics, dialectical dynamics, by means of which these processes had taken place. And so for me, he was the quintessential political philosopher for understanding politics in larger, as we might say, historical contexts. And they were, of course, global historical uh, contexts. So this interest in revolutionary processes and, indeed, world historical revolutions, it seemed to me then boiled down to a preoccupation with historical transitions, essentially, and epochal transitions. And uh, for Hegel, something that was especially interesting was, you know, what was the transition to modernity above all else? And therefore, his work very much is an attempt to give an account of modernity and its underlying value systems and um, institutional organization. For him, the overwhelming transition was from a notion which dominated world history, really, the idea that certain classes of people were naturally slaves. That's a feature of um, ancient Egyptian history, a feature of ancient Indian history, given its caste structures, and obviously of Greece and Rome as well. So the special transition or, if you like, Copernican turn that Hegel was interested in was the abandonment or the loss of the assumption that there were different categories of human being, that the human being was human as such and human in virtue of their possession of the faculty of freedom.
1: That also picks up on a theme from your inaugural lecture from just over a year ago where you spoke of Hegel's wisdom for modern historians, especially regarding the judgment of past political ideas and their bearing on present normative commitments. Could you say more about this insight and where it might lead the history of political thought and indeed the Cambridge School?
2: So his interest in politics is an interest in the history of the development of human social and political norms over time. So whilst I was interested in that as a primary subject matter, In Hegel himself, it also raises the question of well, how does our modernity relate to his modernity? And therefore, the question of what is our relationship generally to dead political thinkers? It has seemed to me generally that, with reference to what's called the Cambridge School, there has long been, let's say, attention between a commitment to what's called contextualism on the one hand, which I would just describe as historicism, and on the other hand, a commitment to what's sometimes called buried treasure, or the idea that one can recover valuable norms from the past. I say a tension between the two because left unanswered is the question of, well, how if the norm that is buried has become buried How does that relate then to our own normative presentness? How does the um, historical insight about the pastness of the past overcome the location of uh, the norms to which one is attracted to in a past? In other words, why aren't they now part of a dead context since the context is now dead? So the thing about buried treasure, which became um, a Cambridge School commitment not just on the part, incidentally, of Quentin Skinner, but it's implicitly the Hauntian project whereby the Scottish Enlightenment is a source of buried treasure or uh, the Tuckian project whereby the the Girondins are their own uh, treasure. This was a sort of generic view of how intellectual history could be useful. But, of course, it cuts against the simultaneous commitment to the idea that all these values and agents are located in a firmly superannuated past. Um, so one problem, really, it seems to me, is that buried treasure advocates were not starting something new in looking for buried treasure. They were continuing an older tradition of a mid-century political thought, which was itself also predicated on the idea that political philosophy in its historical incarnation would seek to excavate and revivify superannuated norms. Obviously, this is what Leo Strauss was doing. This is what Hannah Arendt was doing. This is what Eric Vogelin was doing, uh, and numerous other thinkers of the 50s and 60s, they were all buried treasure advocates. And it seems to me that the Cambridge School, which began as an historicizing movement, then turned and asked itself the question, well, if we are purely historicists, then have we nothing whatsoever to say to political philosophy? They weren't satisfied with that situation. And therefore, it seems to me, reverted to an older model of uh, resuscitating bygone ideologies. And uh, I think it's important to question the viability of the resuscitation, you have to ask, if you're having to resuscitate, why did it expire? And once you're asking how and why it expired, you're then asking the question of how your present relates to the past, and you have to accept that is still your question. You can't, as it were, catapult yourself uh, from the ancients or from the 17th century through to the 21st century without asking, well, how on earth do you get from the one to the other? And the question for the historian of political f- thought insofar as they are also interested in political philosophy must precisely be what is the process of transition and the Hegelian question is precisely what is the process of transition and that seems to me therefore to offer not an unproblematic but certainly a plausible model as a starting point. So if you think about um, Hegel as having been an historian of the past one very firm commitment of his is to the idea that the ancients are dead. He started off with the idea that, that not the Romans, but particularly the Athenians, the Greeks, had offered or had developed a peculiarly attractive culture. That's early Hegel of the 1790s, really. But he came over time to realize that, of course, attractive, yes, in certain aspects, but also failed and failed for good reason. These are slave-owning societies. And as a result of um, internal pressures, their commitment on the one hand to certain... Principles of near universality and equality Conflicted with the obvious fact of being slave-owning societies and Without getting into a loss of detail Greek and Roman forms of social and political organization Imploded under the pressure of their own normative incoherence. So that's the opposite of revivalism It's seeing that the past died a necessary death due to its own imminent incoherence or in Hegelese, by a process of dialectical supersession, it gave way to a new um, successor um, set of norms, norms generated themselves by antecedent failure. So Hegel is not a study of successive progressive norms, but an historian, a philosophical historian, of failures gradually um, generating preferable uh, civilizations, on the assumption that modern non-slaveholding societies are preferable civilizations to ancient ones. So he's precisely not a revivalist, and there is no buried treasure. That doesn't mean you don't have to understand the past, but you still have to understand how we are still, in some sense, the children of Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, but we're not their students. We are beneficiaries of worlds they created but worlds that they created that were themselves inadequate and which have to be superseded and were superseded.
1: Thanks very much for speaking with us today. It's been fascinating.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's been great having this conversation.
1: I am Amira Mooding. And I'm Mark Kredovic. And we're excited to be taking over from Alicia and Olivier, our previous hosts. We've been listening to interventions since before we came to Cambridge and we're looking forward to welcoming many new guests. Please follow us on Twitter at the IH Podcast.
0: Keep up with our announcements there.